This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On this week's show, we're going to look at the first two days of official testing for MotoGP 2021. My name's Steve English and as ever on the Paddock Pass Podcast, I'm joined by David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler. Dave, good to see you. Good to see you too, Stephen. Obviously, Dave, we're uh, after having the first few days of testing as well, so there's plenty for us to look forward to. What was the big thing that you took from the opening couple of days of testing? You know, it, it's quite difficult to understand things. There's a few things like, you know, Stefan Bradl being so fast, that's really impressed me. Um, the Aprilia, it looks like the real deal. Yamaha being fast again, but, you know, is it the? It, is this just Maverick Vinales being king of winter testing again? Um, yeah, still a little bit uh, uh, early to say, I think. Neil, you're back on the podcast. Obviously, you made a request to no longer be a working analyst on the Paddock Pass podcast. And instead of smearing your name all over the papers, we instead actually just acquiesced to your request, gave you a couple of days off. But uh, obviously, you were busy as well during the Qatar test. You were working on after the flag. So you've been fairly up to speed on everything that's been going on. Yeah, yeah. I trust you guys were saying lots of nice things about me in my absence last week. I can uh, I can trust that completely. Um, yep, doing a bit of work in the studio for uh, After the Flag, Dorna's program. Um, and there's going to be three more of those uh, later this week, which I would advise you to tune in to um, if you have the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I would just kind of echo David's comments, really. I mean, difficult to read anything too much into the test other than one or two maybe worrying signs coming out of Yamaha in regards to uh, the development direction for for this year ahead but again um, it was just two days I think one of those days was pretty much everyone getting themselves up to speed Um, so I'm I'm reluctant to read too many too much into the results at this stage. I would like to say that um, there's a really good reason to watch after the flag and that's to see Neil in his his, uh, charming uh, Dorna shirt in which he looks like a sex god. It's it's disgusting. It's they got, disgusting, they got, it really. They got a shirt that fits for the first time, I think, ever. Which is, <laughs> it's a, it's a... I thought the mask was a great addition. What about you, Ad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a little puzzling to see a studio show all masked up, um, you know, when the majority of other sports seem to manage without. But, uh, yeah, I was impressed by how uh, Neil cleaned up. I mean, you know, I thought, you know, some serious branding logo placement there. I mean, what the the fuck are we doing on the Paddock Pass podcast, to be honest? We need to get our logos in order. So, uh, but for my two cents on on the test, uh, you know, stripping it back even to a more basic level, great to see motorbikes out on the track again. Um, You know, good to analyze a little bit of the aero experiments that are going on. Um, A couple of novelties in the fact of uh, someone like Cal Crutchlow getting out on the Yamaha. And of course, his spill leading to a rather pathetic kind of uh, online spat between some of the riders, um, which I'm, which I've mentioned, which I wanted to say I'm loath to mention, but I did. Uh, so, but you know, other than that, there are some some curious things popping up already. Even though conditions in in La Salle were obviously very tricky for all the teams and the brands. Yeah, straight off the bat, I want to say that David obviously is always against anyone with a username, including a rider number. But unfortunately, David, Bradley Baker 58 has actually asked us a really good question to kick things off. He's asked, could there have been a more meaningless preseason test than at Lozale, just given the fact that uh, you've got such a small window to be able to use this track and get really valuable information compared to the race weekend? 
I think this test, he's absolutely right, because precisely because the conditions were appalling, um, there was really strong winds, uh, certainly for the first day, the track was filthy. Um, I think Cormac posted a, a photo in one of the chat groups that we're in, and um, it, it, I mean, you know, it looked like a rain shot. There was so much dust being thrown up by the, by the front tire. Um, it was only really the sort of the second half of the second day uh, that we saw some proper, uh, some real testing going on. Certainly conditions were much better. Um, so this one is a little bit meaningless. Not, not entirely meaningless. I mean, there is lots going on, but it's the sort of thing, there's lots going on behind the scenes that we don't understand because not everyone is doing the same thing. Um, after the next three days, we'll have learnt a lot, lot more. Well, Neil, obviously, when you look at the headline times, Testing's always a case of we look to see who's fast, who's slow, and then you try and sort of go into the details a little bit. But we see Fabio's fastest overall. We see that the likes of Vinales a little bit further down the timesheets than we're used to in testing. Is that a good thing for Yamaha? Um, it, it could be. I mean, Quadraro was very fast. I mean, he was just over a half a second off the, the outright circuit record at, at Lusail. Um, you know, so that's a good thing. Um, but then, you know, um, setting pole positions wasn't really Yamaha's issue last year. Yamaha's issues when were a lot more race-based um, and a lot more uh, related to different tracks that we went to and different kind of temperatures that, that got thrown up. Um, and also, you know, more maybe even temperament based certainly with Quadraro and Vinales and we won't basically we won't find out they, they could top you know the rest of, of preseason each day by a mile and we still won't be completely sure whether they've they've made up uh, where they had to um, over the preseason but um, yeah I mean it looks okay Vinales' comments were interesting in that he wasn't chasing the time he was doing some pretty consistent runs uh, on day two I think he was doing quite a few high 54s and low 55s, which is pretty decent pace for, you know, your first serious day of running on the bike. Um, he was saying about how he was just working on his riding style in that time. He wasn't really trying too many bits and bobs other than the electronics. So, I mean, yeah, that's a maybe a, a positive way to look at it. But then, you know, your first day, your first test as basically Yamaha's lead rider, most experienced rider and... You're not really testing the new chassis or, or kind of one or two things like that that the other guys seem to have been testing. So I'm not sure how to read that, to be honest. A part of me is surprised. I thought, you know, you would surely want to get out there. But then if it's working for Vinales, if it's all about finding his own rhythm, then, then you know, who am I to argue? So, yeah, I, again, lots of things, as David said, we, we can't draw too many conclusions. I'm a little bit puzzled by one or two things, but we'll learn a lot more in the three days to come. I actually found what uh, Vinales was doing really, really interesting because it really has been his weak point, the fact that when there was loads of grip, he was fine, and when there wasn't um, loads of grip, he couldn't get the thing to work. So I, I I found it really interesting that he was saying, you know, he was going out in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, when the track is greasiest, uh, and trying to figure it out, uh, trying to figure out how to do things himself rather than relying on the bike, trying to get the bike uh, to do something, uh, riding around problems. Um, I actually think that's really, really promising. It, it, like you say, it doesn't, doesn't help develop the bike, but it helps develop Maverick Vinales and arguably the weakest link in, Mag in Maverick Vinales and the Yamaha is Maverick Vinales because he's brilliant at some places and not so brilliant at, at, at others. 
Yeah, because David, I was going to say that uh, Chris Pike, the crew chief in World Superbikes, obviously plenty of Grand Prix experience as well for Pikey. Chris underscore Pike underscore. Have a look at that. He did some analysis of it. Vinales was the one that he said was the most consistent rider from his analysis of it. And, you know, we've seen this time and again, Adam, where in winter testing, Vinales looks great. There's no pressure on him. bit like at the end of the season mode when the championship's gone, suddenly you can see riders really come into their own. Is it a bit of a worry for Vinales, and this is something that was said by someone else that's working in the Grand Prix paddock for one of the teams, that, you know, after so long on the bike, that he said after these two days of testing, he's still working on his riding style with it. Well, that's literally what I wanted to say, Steve. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I know talk is cheap. Uh, maybe he's just throwing out some comments, uh, you know, because he has to talk to the press, but... I think, um, you know, like as we've seen years before and Dave mentioned, you know, Maverick does tend to be the king of testing and he's always raised kind of false hopes, you could say, at the start of the season. So, uh, you know, what he was doing on the motorcycle, yes, it was consistent. Um, and like, you know, we've spoken about on, you know, on this broadcast before, it's uh, the, the validity or the importance of this test is is questionable. I mean, it is a shakedown test. And let's not forget, it's usually taking place in Sepang in insufferable heat and um, consistent showers, uh, which also interrupts the the consistency of these couple of days, um, you know, before the, the real kind of urta sessions get down, get down to business. Um, I, I really think, you know, you, you cannot read much at all into the Yamaha situation. Um, and for me, uh, just diverting a little bit from your question, um, you know, a perfect illustration of the fact of how the brands and the teams were using these couple of days in Qatar was shown by Suzuki. Um, and Alex Rins admitting that, you know, they already ran some laps with the 2022 spec for the engine, um, you know, which is obviously not going to be used this season, but Suzuki already checking for more horsepower for, for the following year. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much what these sessions were, you know, scheduled for. Neil, I wanted to just talk a little bit briefly about the Yamaha system because obviously they've got a new test rider they've got Cal Crutchlow coming in and there's always that excitement about whenever a high profile tester comes in we've seen it with Danny Pedrosa at KTM we saw it when Casey Stoner was hired as well someone like Cal comes in and there's then the immediate expectation that he's going to help push Yamaha forward but at this test we kind of saw that Cal is just a test rider. We saw that he was jumping from one bike to the other, wasn't able to really work on getting himself comfortable on the bike. He was there just to be a test rider. And I wanted to ask you just about what that shift is like for a rider as well, because obviously their mentality has to be completely different now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you really cannot be interested in times or, or interested in, in finding perhaps even the most, uh, the most comfortable setting for you. It's about basically assessing in a good way what uh, the engineers want you to assess um and in cal's case i mean sharing a bike with two other japanese test riders which i'm sure is far from ideal for his point of view if he's looking to, to post a, a fast time but you know him and um, nagasuga nozani the two japanese test riders were both there um and they had basically like um yeah three bikes basically that they were going and working between um and again you know cal was saying before he went testing um, he spoke to some journalists i think on um was it friday uh, and he was saying he needs at least three days to get back into the ways of riding the yamaha i mean he's coming from the honda which is pretty much the polar opposite of that bike um he spent seven years i think off the yamaha uh 2013 the end of 2013 was the last time he rode an m1 um 
so yeah, a change in mindset and also just a, a massive change in riding style and, you know, knowing what to expect from a bike and knowing what the bike needs um, to be ridden effectively. But I mean, I, I was in that debrief with, with Carl and I don't quite understand the Japanese methodology. I think Dave might disagree with me um, by keeping all three bikes the same spec and expecting the riders to change between the motorcycles. I mean, I understand the fact that Yamaha uh will want those three bikes at a certain spec and you know they're not i mean calcrop was talking about even position of the bars and footrests and i would have thought if you have a rider uh with that level of competitiveness and ability then you want him comfortable on the yamaha straight away just to minimize that 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 period of time that neil's talking about where he has to get used to the to the m1 again um and then can really start giving the kind of feedback that the japanese riders can't give which is that last kind of second and a half that really, you know, people like Maverick Vinales and, and you know, Fab Fabio Quattara are operating inside. Yeah, but I don't think the uh, position of the bars and all the rest of it is going to give him like a second and a half. That, that, that's not a difference. That's, you know, m maybe a couple of tenths or something. But I remember when uh, Casey Stoner was first um, uh, test rider for Ducati, the first time we got to speak to him, he sort of said, you know, the biggest, uh, uh, biggest issue for him was... Um, adapting to ride someone else's bike, so someone else's bike with their foot positions, their handlebar positions, all the rest of it. Uh, because the thing is, it's not about them. It really is about how the bike feels. And the way you do that is by changing so many, ver as few variables as possible. Um, so you don't change the bars, you don't change the foot pegs, uh, all the rest of it. You have the uh, all of the riders hopping on and off exactly the same bike. Um, because it's the parts that they're testing and not, you know, whether they are comfortable on the bike. It's whether the bike is performing better or not. And um, the way to do that is to change, you know, nothing. Basically have the same bar peg set up uh, on all three bikes and just uh, change the parts on the bikes because changing parts on bikes takes a lot longer than changing um, uh, riders. Dave, you say that it wouldn't make a big difference in terms of that ergonomic factor but i remember at suzuka one year it was the year nakasuga actually was ruled out of the race it would have been 2018 and at that stage yamaha always had where michael vandermark would do two stints and then Lowe's and nakasuga would do three stints and the reason for that was that vandermark was too big for the bike and couldn't fit comfortably on it because the bike is set up for nakasuga and Vandermark always said that this was his big limiting factor and he it was costing him a lot of time. It really wasn't good for him. And whenever Yamaha made this change to the bike to make him more comfortable because Nakasuga was out injured, Vandermark found well over a second a lap. And then suddenly when Nakasuga came back, they actually ended up running the same setup in the Japanese championship for him. And he ended up being just as fast. So from that point onwards, that trio kept them basically where the bike was set up for Vandermark. So it does give you an awful lot more useful information. And then whenever you factor in as well, if you were to compare the Yamaha situation to someone like Suzuki, we talk a lot on the podcast about the influence that Sylvain Cantoli made at Suzuki. And obviously he's got a whole test team built around him. He's got his own crew chief that he works with full time. He's got all of his own staff and he's got his own bikes that he works on. Surely that is a much better solution than having a rider like Cal jumping from one bike to the other not feeling comfortable. I mean, they can do that for, with Sylvain Guntoli because they've only got Sylvain Guntoli or, I mean, they'll have to take um, uh, to that as well. Um, but he is just sort of doing the mileage. Guntoli is very much the sort of the, the centerpiece of that testing effort. Um, at the moment, I think Yamaha are in a very different situation uh, in terms of testing. Right now, 
because they haven't done any testing at all over the winter, so they haven't tested any parts um, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, some of which are a bit peculiar, but never mind. Um, uh, I think once we get into the Europe, if we have any tests, say after Jerez or after Brno or whatever, uh, then you'll see a different situation where the bike is set up much more for uh, for, for crutch low, and uh, then uh, uh, and then they you know they change the parts around for that sort of thing. I mean, there have been test riders since the advent of, of factory teams, um, you know, and I think. The Japanese in in recent years have really upped their game in terms of establishing a whole European set operation just to match the likes of Ducati, KTM, Aprilia. Um, you know, and I think if you employ riders like Jonas Volga, Kyle Crutchlow, Stefan Bradl, Siwan Gintoli, then you know you you're employing them for their ability, uh, their experience at the highest level, and their ability to dive into that last second that's really making the difference in MotoGP these days. So, you know, why not, why not, why not tap into that? I don't think they're looking, uh, the test riders are not looking for the last second. The test riders are looking for uh, the feeling. They're looking for the parts which give the best feeling and which work the best. Um, that's not necessary. So they, uh, you don't have to be doing, you know, breaking the pole, uh, the, 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 the pole record every time you go out. You have to be close, like you say. I mean, you have to be sort of uh, a competitive rider. You have to be as fast as Piero, as Gwintoli, as, um, uh, as Stefan Bradl. Um, but you don't have to be right on it all the time. You just you have to get the feedback. If you look at uh, Danny Pedrosa's times, you know, Danny Pedrosa is maybe second and a half off, something like that. So he's not really going all that fast but he understands what the bike is doing and he can communicate what the bike is doing and that's that's the most important thing it's that experience and you know it's uh it's again a case where if i was i don't know i mean again my uneducated opinion if i was in charge of the yamaha test team i would want to get cal crutch though as comfortable as possible as quickly as possible to say we have a new swing arm we want you to try and lap as close as you can to, to what you've done and let us know about it. Whereas I think he's going to bring that advantage compared to some of, say, the Japanese riders who are not going to be running, you know, so close to MotoGP pace. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, Danny Pedrosa has obviously brought all of his experience working with HRC to KTM, um, you know, and Gintoli as well from his various stints in manufacturers across the board in Superbike and, you know, various uh, domestic series. So it's, um, I think it's it's an asset that, it seems strange that Yamaha really haven't exploited. And of course, there are there are varying degrees of efficiency in test riders. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo, as it turned out, wasn't the perfect solution for, for Yamaha. And, and Casey Stoner is not testing anymore for, for Ducati or for Honda. So there are obviously issues there in terms of what he could feel and what he could impart and how he could impact uh, the development of these bikes. Um, yeah, I'd just also like to pick up on, while we're on the theme of Yamaha, you know, Rossi's comments weren't uh, overly positive at the end of um, day two. Um, neither were his times, actually. He was 20th fastest, 1.7 seconds off Cordoaro. You know, it's not great. We know Rossi isn't um, isn't the king of testing by any means, but um, even that is quite slow. Um, and I know that Rossi, this is quite normal to hear him say these kind of things during preseason and for him to be so slow. But what I would say is, you know, on on Sunday night, I think he said that um, the new Yamaha chassis that they brought is more similar to 2020 than to 2019. And basically they're trying to refine that uh, sweet spot that they had in 2019, which is, you know, why Franco Morbidelli was so quick, obviously, last year. Um, and Rossi said they haven't done that. And 
yes, he's not been great at testing in recent years, but normally you can kind of judge. I think Rossi's a better judge of a bike in preseason than, than Vinales, certainly. And you think back to 17, Vinales like, um, really was so much faster than Rossi all of that preseason, but Rossi was the one saying, I don't think the character of this bike is that good. And then it was only when we got to Catalonia where it turned out that he was actually right. And then Vinales just like fell off a cliff. And I think the same could even be said last year. Um, Cordero and Vinales were blindingly fast at Sepang, but Rossi was a bit more hesitant. I'm not sure about this 2020 bike. In the end, he was proved right. Um, so I would, I would, obviously with the caveat that Rossi is pretty slow, yes, in preseason normally, but his comments would alarm me slightly if I was Yamaha personnel. Yeah, and Cordero wasn't all that sort of positive about it. I mean, he did say like it was better, but it was still, um, uh, there wasn't as much difference as he thought. And, you know, it, it wasn't as close to the 2019 uh, uh, as he wanted. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're still, they still have a lot to do. But yeah, the, 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 two, the, the 2021 chassis is not the 2019 chassis. Um, and it depends how far, how close that they can get to, they can get with it. It did seem to turn better, which uh, was one of the problems the, 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 the chassis had. Dave, just uh, one question we got in from one of our listeners, Paul Van Vliet. He was asking whether or not we actually got any sort of comparisons from Crutchlow between the Honda and the Yamaha. Uh, we typically don't tend to hear the test riders make big comparisons between their previous bike and their current bike. Well, it was very clever of uh, Yamaha to let him speak before the uh, uh, test rather than after the test. So he couldn't even make a uh, make a comparison. Um, generally, um, it is considered bad form. Uh, Polo Spargaro didn't want to talk, didn't want to make the comparisons either. Even when I sort of pushed him about um, uh, the nature of the Honda versus the KTM uh, and the Yamaha, but you know, the the both the KTM and the Honda are bikes which you can actually force. You can actually forced to try to go faster uh, and then you are faster um, and uh, um, Espargaro was saying um, vaguely about the uh, the Yamaha because he hated the Yamaha because he couldn't actually whenever he tried to push to go faster he wouldn't go any faster he had to sort of like relax and then the bike would go faster and he really really hated that it went against his uh, against his nature um, and he would sort of only talk vaguely of other manufacturers, but they really uh, they try to be very careful. In part, also because um, you, they never know when they might have to go back, and they don't want to um, uh, be making horrendous car- uh, uh, comments about uh, uh, former employers, uh, only to to you know go back in two years' time, grovelling, saying, "Please, sir, can I have a motorbike?" Neil, obviously, Dave's just mentioned Paul, so we'll start to talk about Honda now at this stage, and probably the biggest surprise for everyone at Honda was that Stefan Bradl was so fast. Obviously, plenty of time on the bike last year, he was a race rider for pretty much the whole season, obviously replacing Mark Marquez. He ended up inside the top five on the overall timesheet, but his pace all the way through the weekend was really impressive. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yes, he was a, he was a race rider for most of last year. You could also say that um, while most of the guys were getting up to speed on their MotoGP bikes um, on day one of the test, Bradle had already tested at Hareth. He tested on the Sheikh Down Day in Qatar as well. So, you know, he pretty much was up to speed. Um, but even still, um, it was quite impressive from, uh, from Stefan. And, um, you know, I think midway through the final day um, on day two, uh, Bradle was first and Paul Spargaro was second. And normally we don't really see Honda doing 
that well at this test. This has historically been a really tough test for Honda. Um, so, you know, Braddle being the test rider, Paul obviously having his first taste of the bike. Um, yeah, it, it would it would be positive, I would say, for Honda so far. Um, and it does beg the question as to whether the fact that Mark hasn't been really here for the best part of a season, um, whether they are just paying a little bit extra attention to what their riders need, um, the riders that aren't Mark Marquez, you know, normal riders, let's say. I think in terms of general speed and um, the level of, uh, you know, content by Paula Spargaro is quite encouraging uh, what came out of the two days uh, for the new factory rider. Um, Alex Marquez, of course, had a couple of offs and destroyed that uh, LCR livery, whether you think it's fantastic or actually pretty, pretty hideous. Um, but, you know, we found out news today that, you know, Mark Marquez is actually on the provisional uh, grid list for the first race in Qatar, which I don't think was a surprising move at all by uh, Honda. You know, they want to have uh, their star rider, you know, at least uh, in a position where he can race. Uh, he can, you know, make that uh, bid to try and get some sort of points. Um, so, you know, like Neil says, I don't think it was a, a disastrous first outing by HRC uh, at all. Yeah, and obviously I, I still think that the LCR looks absolutely hideous with that uh, extra <laughs> bit of blue. But uh, I'd obviously you mentioned about um, Mark being on the entry list. That basically just buys a bit of time for Honda as well. They don't have to put a replacement rider on the bike in case that Mark uh, fails a physical before the first race. Gives them that little bit of time. But uh, I'd just going back to Paul as well, because Paul's pace was quite good. Like whenever you watched after the flag, you were able to just basically get a little bit of insight into what his weekend was like but his pace actually was fairly impressive all the way through he adapted quite well to the Honda and you obviously have known Paul for a long time going all the way back to his days in the Spanish Championship and it's going to be exciting to see what he can do on the Honda this year yeah I mean he's uh of course there's the the situation where he has to adapt to a whole new crew um I mean he's even got some close uh personnel that he's had with him for most of his career uh, certainly in the MotoGP class that he's you know he's currently missing inside the the pit box um so it, I think those two days were an important period of acclimatization for Aspargaro but um, I don't think I'm being too outrageous to say that he's at the peak of his career in terms of maturity, um, in terms of realizing that he's got the the golden contract that he wants, as he's publicly talked about. So I think he's going to take a, a very kind of considered approach to what he needs to do, especially with the other side of the pit box kind of empty. Um, you know, of course, Brado is there, but Marquez isn't. So I think as Bargaro is thinking, listen, I, I almost have to lead this team, you know, in my first few races, I can't afford to chuck it down the road or go too wild or get too um, overambitious. So um, I'll, I'll, I'm really interested to, what, to see what he can do in the three days of the Erta test. And I wouldn't be surprised if he takes a little bit of a, a measured approach to the first few races to build into the season. Yeah, and Dave, obviously for Paul on the overall timesheets, it was 12th fastest overall for him on his Repsol Honda debut. But uh, what's your expectation for him as well then on the basis of what we saw in these opening couple of days? I mean, if you look at Paul, uh, then his times, uh, if you look at the, the, using the very handy little color-coded spreadsheet, which um, uh, uh, Chris Pike put up on uh, on Twitter, you can see that he basically, Paul basically is on the same level of pace 
as uh, Alex Marquez and Takanakagami. So, you know, his pace looks good. He was comfortable. He had a big smile. Again, this is really, really important. He had a really big smile sort of at the end of each stage. He seemed really happy. He seemed comfortable. He didn't look um, like uh, he didn't look at all lost. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I think it was a it was a, a decent. I mean, it wasn't sort of an exceptional debut, but it was a very good debut. It was. Um, uh, it's going to be much more interesting to see where he stands at the end of the second test than at the end of the first test. Uh, th- that'll be a much better reflection. But uh, you know, we expected Paul to be good because of uh, you know his riding style and the nature of the Honda, and I think. Uh, our expectations were met. He's 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 going to be fine. He's going to be fine on the bike. The question then is, you know, how much, how far can his talent on that bike take him? Um, and that I think is the big question mark, and it's going to be interesting to follow. Can I just say I have a ten euro bet with Cormac GP, uh, one of our esteemed colleague and photographer in MotoGP, that Paul is going to outperform Alex Marquez in two thousand and twenty-one, and I'm feeling a little bit more uh, happy. That my money is um, remaining on the table. Um, it's pathetic to say that after the first two days of MotoGP, but I'm relieved that Paul didn't crash four times. Uh, he wasn't the last in the timesheets. Um, you know, it could still all go horribly wrong, but, um, you know, so far so good. Yeah, but just to make a quick comparison to when Lorenzo jumped on the bike for the first time, um, I think he said one decent lap time, but his pace was atrocious. You know, it was just one decent lap time and then his pace was a second and a half slower than that. So as David said, for Paul to already be fairly consistent, um, I think that does bode quite well. And especially considering he still feels there's so much to come, he's only just kind of finding out how to make up the time with uh, with the Honda. And I think it's also kind of funny because, we, you know, I think it's 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 not a stretch of the imagination to say that the KTM is the most similar bike to uh, to the Honda on the grid. But even in spite of that thought, Paul was saying you can't even begin to imagine how different it feels whenever you're you're using the front end of the Honda. Um, you know, as as we know, that's how you make up time on that bike. And um, he was saying even the Bradle, who you wouldn't consider to be a a, a really late breaker um he was saying even compared to Bradle, Bradle was doing some pretty impressive things with the front of the bike mid corner that uh, he still has to learn to do i uh, neil i'm loath to to kind of defend lorenzo especially after some kind of you know weird antics on social media these last few days but then i guess he was probably less than fully fit you know with that broken wrist coming into pre-season testing so I mean that you could let him off in that aspect, whereas I guess Paul is 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 pretty much fully fully fit. Yeah, but if there's any week that we shouldn't let Lorenzo off, it's this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> well said. We always have it, guys. Where I remember whenever I, I first came to MotoGP, there was only ever like ten at the most ten riders you had to talk about. In all likelihood, it was five or six. Now it's really difficult to actually fill in all the stories that happen for each of the teams, each of the riders. Obviously, we haven't really touched on Marquez or Nakagami, but we have a question in from one of our Twitter followers, and it's from Redland TN. Now, I'm basically only 
uh, giving you Redland TN's question because his Twitter handle is FM19. So I'm hoping he's a big football manager fan. And that's obviously the way to my heart. And uh, he's asking whether or not we think Braddle could fight for a podium if he erases through this season. So just before we cut to an ad break, I want just a quick answer from each of you. David, can Stefan Braddle have a podium this year if he races? Uh, if he races more than sort of four or five races, definitely. And Neil, uh, if the you know if the stars align um, and something quite dramatically strange happens, it's entirely possible. Um, but I think in normal circumstances, no. Ad, I think if he infiltrates the Moto E field with a Mugen Honda, then he might be in with a chance of a podium. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, no, no. Okay, well there you go, FM nineteen. The boys don't really think there's too much chance of that. So uh, maybe there's some good money to be made on Stefan Braddle bets in each way at some point through the season. But the guys ain't seen it. So when we come back after the break, we'll move on from talking about Yamaha and Honda to the rest of the field. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, we've still got plenty to talk about from the Qatar test. But David, we're going to start off with Ducati. Obviously, the Qatar tests are always really interesting for Ducati. They always bring out new parts. And this year was no exception. They, they brought out a whole host of new aero parts. Yeah, I mean, it's they're all in on aerodynamics. Um, and it's the reason, it's basically the reason why the MSMA, which used to be a very powerful organization, has fallen apart because the MSMA um, uh, is only a powerful organization when they operate as a unit and, and unanimously. Um, but Gigi Delinia wants to play with uh, aerodynamics as much as possible. And uh, most of the other factories don't. And as a consequence, um, they can't agree on anything. Um, the, I mean, the, the aerodynamics which we've uh, seen so far, and I really expect there to, see, to be a lot more aerodynamics in the next few days. Um, what, what we saw with Ducati were these weird scoops on the bottom of the, um, uh, almost like a sort of like a thrust vector, like, or, um, a, a bit like you used to find on, um, uh, on the Harrier, uh, the Harrier jet, these sort of pointable nozzles, uh, where the, uh, the air is coming in at the front and then being, uh, siphoned underneath. Um, lots of speculation about what they would do. Uh, they might help turn the bike. Uh, you would, they seem to be more effective at, uh, uh you know, at a, at a lean angle. Um, the, you know, the, the, they might be sort of helping, uh, helping the bike to turn. They might also be, working to channel the airflow back to the rear wheel um, because this is again something which which Ducati really really uh, uh, really work on the, the, the Ducati spend a lot of time uh, working on tire conservation on uh, managing tires managing tire temperature all the rest of it um, uh, certainly it's directing a lot of airflow to just underneath the fairing in front of the, in front of the rear wheel. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and like I say, I expect to see uh, a, a lot more from them. 
Um, they don't seem to have bought a lot more parts. Certainly, you know, they can't change the engine. Um, uh, and you saw that they were working, uh, they had these special wheels on which uh, somebody on Twitter pointed out that it's a, a motorcycle test wheel, which basically it's got lots and lots of sensors in, so you can measure all of the stresses on uh, on the wheel. Um, they look a bit like what used to be the old com style wheels, which were basically these sort of pressed wheels. Uh, but they've got lots of, lots of sensors in to uh, measure side load, rotational load, uh, that sort of thing, um, to see how the wheel is behaving. Uh, and uh, again, that is all for tyre preservation, managing tyres, understanding how to extract the, the ma- maximum performance from tyres. Neil, obviously, on after the flag, we had Simon Crayfire over in Qatar, and Simon always very excited about what's going on up and down pit lane, but this kind of aero stuff and, and all the additional uh, measuring tools that we see on a Ducati during the course test, this is always what really excites Simon. Yeah, it is, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, Jack Miller um, indicated, which, you know, he probably shouldn't have done um, if you're a Ducati factory boss, but uh, Jack Miller indicated that uh, there's more still to come. I think there's another special ferry that's uh, going to be debuted in the coming days. So, um, yeah, um, you'd have to say it's pretty positive for, for him so far. I mean, he was second fastest, just uh, 700s off Fabio's fastest time. Um, he just had a big smile on his face anytime I saw him on screen um, or heard him interviewed um, over the, the weekend. Um, he seems to be in a really positive place, gelled pretty quickly with the new team, um, going in with a really positive mindset and um, yeah, with, with more things on the horizon for Ducati to test. Um, you know, Miller could be looking at leaving Qatar after the first two races with a couple of podiums under his belt, which would be a, a tremendous way to start the year. Yeah, I'm going to just like to point out you talked about the lights. Those lights are called their um, uh, optical sensors from Kistler, and they used to measure, uh, I think, speed and a number of other uh, and ride height and all the rest of it. Again, it's about understanding precisely what the tire is doing and what the what the swing arm is doing. They've got one uh, under the front uh, or, or right hanging right off the rear of the swing arm, and then I think one also pointing just underneath the. Um, uh, the front of the fairing and um, at night it it really shows up at night at, uh, in Qatar because there's this sort of glow underneath a bit like a um, you know somebody's uh, hopped up Ford Escort <laughs> as for me I think Jack Miller was one of the big winners from from the first kind of outings of of you know uh, the, the first test you know, I think uh, the fact that he's obviously acclimatizing again, that word, uh, to a new team, uh, the pace looked good, uh, Ducati's kind of innovations, like Neil said, I think, you know, we're still to see a couple more tricks to come out of the box uh, from the Italians in, in the three days to come and before, you know, everybody has to homologate stuff for 2021. Um, you know, if Miller can keep steady over the next three days of the Ota test and, and post top five times, then, you know, he's going to be looking in, in great shape, especially considering Ducati's record at, at Qatar as well. I mean, it be, could be a great start to the season. Yeah, and Ad, I was just going to ask you about Jack as well, because whenever we talked to him over the course of the weekend, he seemed to be very matter-of-fact. He was always really talking in terms of just building his way through. He's not trying to just jump on it, set a fast time, look good. He's really got a plan all the way through the test and all the way through the winter, it looks like. 
Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked before before about how 2021 is going to be a big year for Miller. Um, I mean, hopefully we're going to get him on the podcast soon to talk about, you know, what the season holds in store for him. Uh, But, you know, again, it's I think similar to Paul and HRC, there's a a feeling of um, the stars aligning a little bit with a rider being in the right time at the right place and the right mentality uh, with the, the resources at his disposal to do the job. Um, you know, in contrast to Dibizioso, where, you know, things were either going to be fantastic and he was going to get great results and, and challenge Mark, uh, or he was going to be off and fighting for seventh or eighth position. I think there's there's a lot more kind of potential to the Miller Ducati package. Um, some of the stuff that the, you know, we always look forward to seeing from, from the Italians, uh, you know, surfaced just in those first two days. So it'd be curious to see, you know, what else comes through and also, you know, could help um, Pekka Bagnai improve his competitiveness. Dave, I just wanted to ask you one question as well, because obviously Jack is bringing some of his crew on with him onto the Ducati pit box. It's actually one of the things that was said during After the Flag. I didn't realize it, but when you get given your crew chief at the start of your Ducati career, you basically keep them all the way through. And then it means as well that crew chiefs are recycled down through the order as well as riders move up. So Davi's old crew chief is now with Bastianini. So it is a case of you really do build that relationship all the way through. And we've talked about this off off air before we've recorded who we think is going to be the top rookies and that has to be a big thing for the likes of Bastianini to have someone with that level of experience to be able to really shortcut a lot of his his experience in Ducati yeah exactly I mean it was interesting at the Ducati launch so that was one of the things which uh, Gigi Delini and I think Paolo Ciabatti said is like basically uh, when you join Ducati uh, you get a crew chief and a data engineer um, and uh, you spend the rest of your career in Ducati with those two guys because those are the uh, th- those are the key relationships within uh, uh, within a racing team. And so, as long as they can all understand the, uh, understand each other, then that is uh, you know that's what they're going to uh, to be uh, sort of based on. I think um, you know as as much as it is exciting to get. Uh, a look at what's going on in the sh- these shakedown tests. I mean, you have to look at a rider like Luca Marini um, and see the way he was trying to fit on the Desmo Sedici. Um, You know, he was kind of pretty much all elbows and, and knees and arms just trying to find his orientation on the motorcycle. I mean, that's what these couple of days are about. Um, you know, I think the, the Erta test days, the three days to come are very much like, well, this part worked for me. Well, that part won't. Um, you know, we're racing in La Salle. It's very dusty. has a very, um, you know, has very idiosyncratic parts to its layout. Um, you know, will what's feeling fantastic for me here work in Red Bull Ring or a Jerez? So, you know, it's uh, Marini was was a fine example of what the shakedown is about. Yeah, and also like the contrast between Marini and Bastianini. I mean, yeah, Marini is massive, uh, really, you know, tall, gangly youth. Uh, I think he's 180, 1m80 something or other, and um, Bastianini could, uh, could hide under a turtle. Yeah, and Dave, because I, I was going to ask any of you really about this, but Luca is quite an interesting case study in it because Luca's pretty much just a whisper under six foot. It is still on the tall side for any Grand Prix rider. We see quite a few superbike riders that are that kind of size, but it's also a production-based bike, so there is a lot more room on it. When you're that little bit taller on a GP bike, it does make a big difference. And, you know, Luca, even though people will say, you know, Rossi's six foot, Rossi isn't six foot. Rossi's six foot in the same way that I'm 10 stone. I could kind of <laughs> get away with it, 
but no one's going to believe it in a million years whenever you're actually standing beside them. And Rossi is probably, you know, 5'10". Luca's another two inches taller than him. You know, and it is tough to be able to fit onto a bike. And whenever you look at the Ducati riders over the last few years, have we really had anyone that's that, you know, six footer? Like obviously Petrucci's a, a big guy as well, Dave. Yeah, but I mean, Petrucci's also very, very, I mean, Petrucci looks like a boxer. I mean, like he's, his body type is much more muscular. Um, and that was always, you know, a, a, a big problem. Um, uh, Alicia Spargo is actually quite tall, but then, you know, he spends so much time cycling that he weighs about six grams. Um, and it's hard to say, but if there is a bike, I mean, the, the, the Ducati is physically quite large. Um, there, it, it's quite a long bike. There is generally a little bit more room on the Ducati than there is, um, uh, on the Honda, for example. The Honda has always been, uh, it's always been small and sometimes it's been minuscule. Uh, at the moment, it is quite a small bike. I think it's more difficult, for example, for, for Alex Marquez. I mean, Alex Marquez is not massive, um, but he is, you know, he's near, uh, uh, I think he's 178, something like that. So he's nearer six foot than he's nearer five five. Um, and that makes, uh, that makes a big difference. Also, um, imperial units are the work of the devil and we shouldn't use them ever. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, Peko Bagnaya, I mean, I'm, I'm five foot 11 and he's not that much shorter than me, but you know, what they've said, the Desmos Adichie, I think is, is the roomiest bike probably on the MotoGP grid. And, you know, for evidence of that, you just have to look at Jorge Lorenzo and his efforts to, to get the, the the tank of the bike padded out and and to feel comfortable, it took him the better part of half a season to get acquainted with the ergonomics of the Ducati before he could be really competitive. Yeah, I have to say that's a really good point. Dad, it did take Lorenzo. If you remember, he used to put extra foam at the end of the seat unit to push himself that little bit forward. He really did spend a lot of time trying to fix that. I also can't believe none of yous made any sort of remark about me pretending to be ten stone, considering <laughs> I'm eighteen stone. It would be a remarkable achievement for anyone to actually believe I was that light. They'd have to be so far away that uh, it, they wouldn't really be able to see me. Neil, you're a little bit on the opposite side of that. You probably could get away. With people thinking you're about 10 stone but <laughs> when we look at uh, Ducati all the way through this weight is king in MotoGP Ducati dominated through the speed traps again so even though they've got riders of lots of different weights that bike is still just the absolute missile down the straight that's going to still continue to be a big advantage for them yeah yeah no it certainly is um it does look like uh Gigi Delinia is very much stuck to his uh principal ideology which is build a ridiculously fast bike um, that breaks very well and is quite stable and uh you know the rider can make the difference um and it was interesting also you know we, we we've seen in the last couple of years honda has uh, has almost been a match for ducati certainly two years ago at qatar um marquez and Honda had made a massive step in that regard. But uh, yeah, Honda was uh, quite some way off. So it does look like Ducati has re-established um, its top speed advantage in MotoGP. However, you know, uh, first two days of testing and all that, can't read too much into it. But certainly Honda doesn't seem to have the grunt that it had, that it had um, you know, back in 2019. Yeah, and obviously we're going to move on from Ducati now to one of the other manufacturers. We'll move on to KTM. But before we do, we want to just uh, give a shout out to all of our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash podcast. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. And this week we got plenty of new patrons in, including the likes of Dan, Patrick, Adrian, Peter, Arthur, Benji, Matthew, Nicholas, Devon, uh, Gordon, Michael and Phil. So plenty of, uh, plenty of new patrons. And we're actually going to add... 
a new show as well just for patrons going forward as well just a quick five minute ten minute show where we look at an individual topic of interest in the MotoGP paddock at any given time so thank you to everyone for supporting us on patreon and uh dave like i said we're going to move on to talk about ktm because it was a bit of a strange test for ktm yeah not particularly fast miguel Oliveira was the best of them um uh the we kept on asking, have you used, used the new engine? And they kept on saying, no, I haven't used the new engine. Brad Binder had a shocker, had an absolutely horrendous uh, test, just couldn't get up to, couldn't get any feeling. I think he crashed a couple of times. Uh, yeah, twice. Uh, twice on the second day, I think. It was just not, um, it was, yeah, it, it was just not terrific. Uh, I would um, suggest we ask Adam because he, um, uh, he probably knows more than me. It was, a, I think, a case. KCM obviously having new stuff to try. I think the most interesting uh, was Miguel Oliveira talking about the front and rear hole shot devices. Uh, again, it's a time when teams could also make practice starts. So that's something, you know, that KTM were one of the slowest manufacturers to to bring that kind of technology to the show last year. I mean, Paulus Bargaro was very forthright in saying that, you know, he didn't feel that the KTM RC, RC16 needed that particular kind of assist. But uh, now Oliveira, you know, is one of the riders in that quartet trying to adapt to that riding system. Ikalukiwana, question mark, still over him. Dan, uh, Danilo Petrucci, obviously, still trying to adjust to the motorcycle. And then Binder's crashes as well, just ruling out any kind of signs that he might be, you know, quicker than 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 we thought he would be at the end of t- uh, 2020. But, um, you know, I think it's... Positive signs for Oliveira. I mean, it's a brand new, again, a brand new team, a brand new technical crew. Uh, I think he was fifth fastest on day one. Um, so again, you know, a, a lot to look at in, in the three-day of the Urta test. But um, just to go off on a, a tangent, um, you know, one thing we shouldn't obviously forget is some of the tire allocation that Michelin brought. Um, and, you know, the, the head of their 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 crew, I guess you could say, Piero Terramasso, was talking uh, to us in a debrief. And said that for for the three days to come, starting from from Wednesday, um, you know, Michelin have a slightly different variation on the rear tire for the teams to try. Uh, so let's see, you know, what kind of manufacturer can can blend quickest with that particular type of rubber. And Neil, just to go back to a little bit about what Adam was talking about there, we were obviously talking about Brad Binder being one of the surprises of the test, being so far down the order. We actually had a chance to sit down with brad for an interview for the podcast we're going to have that out at the weekend but uh, what was brad's main takeaways from the qatar test yeah he was basically just saying that um you know things just weren't really working out for him he had uh he felt quite strange on the bike he wasn't the, the only rider to say that basically um yeah, on the first day of testing on the, the Saturday, um, it took him a little bit of time to get up to speed. And then when he did try and push, he had a couple of crashes and that probably, um, you know, held him back a bit. Also, um, he is working with a new crew chief this year. Sergio Valbuena has moved across from his side of the garage over to work with Petrucci in, in Tech 3 this year. And, and Brad's got another a new crew chief. So... You know, that's a, a lot to kind of uh, to take in. You've got, um, you're testing new parts, um, you're a bit rusty, you have a new face in the garage that's kind of your closest ally, or supposed to be your closest ally. And um, yeah, you know, track conditions are tricky and you, you go down the road a couple of times. So um, he certainly wasn't panicking whenever we spoke to him earlier today, Steve. But um, yeah, it's, it's much too early to be pressing the alarm button just now. Um, yeah, far from it. I mean, Brad did say that the cause of his second crash, I think it was going into turn 14, was the wind. 
I mean, the strong gusts of wind uh, that kind of invaded the the testing days. Uh, I mean, looking at the data, he felt that was the the reason for for the spill. So uh, whether that's indicative of uh, how he feels, you know, on the bike and the 2021 spec is still to be seen. I've actually gone through almost an hour of the pod before we've even mentioned the world champions. And uh, Dave, how was the test for Joanne Mir? Obviously for Suzuki, they're trying to make sure that everything stays as consistent as last year. Ad's already talked about how they're looking towards a 2022 engine spec with Sylvain Gantoli. But for them, they're not looking to reinvent the wheel. No, exactly. I mean, one of the reasons they're already working on the 2022 engine is because the 2022 and 2021 bike, you know, it's a very, very good bike. Uh, They had a new uh, chassis, I believe, which they were uh, testing. I think they also had a new swing arm. Um, But again, it's all minor, very minor variations. Um, uh, Both uh, Mir and Rince were quick. They were consistent. Um, they seem to be in pretty much the same sort of uh, situation as they were last year. Uh, and it is actually really smart to be working on a 2022 engine now because the input which you give now uh, they can uh, means the engineers can go away, they can bring a, another engine for the next test and uh, another one for the next test and they will be properly prepared with more horsepower. I think Alex Rint said that the 2022 engine um, uh, it did have more power, uh, and that was that was what they needed. So I think, basically, you know, Suzuki in a good situation. They don't need to change much. They have to make sure they don't uh, that the others don't overtake them. Uh, but just by the process of refining, they can uh, do well enough to stay ahead. Neil, obviously, on the um, Qatar test preview that myself and David did for Patreon that we then posted just uh, during the test, we spoke about how one of the key things for Suzuki was to be able to find single lap pace, be able to make that improvement on low fuel, fresh tyres, see whether or not they can actually qualify a little bit better. Was this test a good indication of what we can expect from that, or were the track conditions not uh, conducive at all for really being able to read too much into the fact that Suzuki were still, I don't know, half a second off the pace in the ultimate pace? Yeah, I, I don't think we can read too much into that, to be honest, Steve. Uh, Joanne was asked about this on Sunday night, about whether they had had the chance to work on you know, their big weakness from 2020, and he said that they hadn't. They'd been just trying to test um, basically you know, as many items as possible in the, uh, the allocated time. Um, and the, the sort of the uh, the difficulties of this test were, were nicely uh, surmised by Mir's crew chief Frankie Carcetti, who wrote um, a pretty decent tweet on I think it was Saturday night. He's basically saying that half of the day on Saturday was uh, the conditions were too hot to run, uh, half of the day they were too cold to run, and uh, all the while his rider hadn't been on that MotoGP machine for about three and a half months, and um, also they had uh, about a million different parts to test. So. Um, yeah, it was it was quite you know with with all that in mind, I think uh, the fact that Mir was still eight fastest bodes pretty well. Um, you know they, they they don't certainly seem to be um, trying to reinvent the wheel, but certainly some chassis differences were being tested by Mir. Some electronics um, settings as well, I think, were being involved in, and tested too. So um, I think we're going to see both Rins and Mir push for one-off lap times a lot more over the upcoming three days. Friday, Friday night. Last day of the test. Is this the uh, part of the show where we enter into the cynicism section of the week? Um, is it is it is it worth pointing out that you know? I mean, Suzuki, a lovely team. I mean, they couldn't be more cooperative of everything that we do and work with in the paddock. But you know, in terms of a world championship presentation, 
<laughs> I think it was somewhat lacking. Um, anybody having to catch it online before the first test, uh, some of the interviews were even drowned out by the sound of revving bikes in the pit lane, which is a very unusual occurrence just before a test is about to begin. Yeah, yeah, they did never do that. They never warm bikes up just before, you know, sort of about an hour before the test just to make every check everything works. Wholly unexpected, Dave, wholly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think was, I've ever walked into the paddock at any given time and there wasn't a bike getting warmed up though. Like it's... <laughs> it was, it was a little, uh, a little underwhelming. I think from from a, a manufacturer that have you know not won a world championship for for the better part of two decades. I think something a little bit more memorable could have could have been in store. Yeah, but at least it's got a monster logo on, eh? <laughs> well, let's move on from something, Adam, that underwhelmed you to something that uh, probably took a few people by surprise and that was Aprilia's pace and David we've seen this in the past already where Aprilia have looked like they've made shots of progress they look like they've suddenly turned a corner and uh, you know we spoke about this before about how it seems that you know they have made another step forward with their bike but the reason they can make these big steps forward is because they were coming from so far back and uh, while you know the times looked very impressive for Elias during the course of this test are we going to be in that position where, as usual, we read too much into Aprilia and think that they've actually made all this massive progress? I asked Alace this on, uh, uh, what was it, Sunday night, and he said, oh, uh, Massimo Rivolo is here, and he's, uh, he's forbidden me from being too optimistic. Um, uh, and honestly, it really does look like they have made some progress because it wasn't just a single lap. It was real progress. Um, you know, he was doing sort of regular 50. I think he did a long run with a whole bunch of 54s and low 55s. Um, he did a very long run. Um, so yeah, the bike, the, the, the bike is looking good. I, I, there weren't any mechanicals that I heard of. There weren't engines blowing up, which is usually a bad sign. Again, this is the second season of that engine concept since changing the engine um they've changed a lot of uh, sort of tweaked a lot of things on the bike um the low downforce i mean they were quite low down on the on the top speeds because they have a high downforce uh, uh, fairing which is uh, really helping with acceleration ironically so um yeah i i think there's room for optimism i mean look the, they're not going to win the world championship this year, but they are going to make a proper fist of it, unlike last year. And uh, Neil, just about Aleish as well. Obviously, Qatar is always a track where he's gone fantastically well in the past. Doesn't really matter what bike he's been on, whether it was even in Moto Two or on Moto GP bikes. He's always been fast in Qatar. Do you think is that also going to mask a little bit of the potential of the Aprilia or maybe we, we're not seeing the full picture just because it's a track where Alesh always goes so well yeah I mean I would um, I would agree with what David said but uh, you know there are obviously caveats flying left right and centre at us when we talk about Aprilia and Alesh in preseason. I mean it was this track in I think 2014 with forward, forward Yamaha where it looked as though Alesh was going to uh, run away with the race um, that didn't happen obviously um, last year coming away from Sepang you know things were, were so rosy and he was talking about the bike having podium potential and it just never really turned out that way um, yeah I mean it, it does look like they've made a, a decent step with the bike um, he certainly said in terms of uh, stability the bike is pretty good it seems that they've really sorted out their aerodynamics as well this year which is a, a crucial part of the, the setup now and um, I think they've, they've selected which aerodynamics package they're going to use for this year um and Alice was talking a little bit about how 
because the Dawn Force is so different with this uh, kind of new ferry that they have. He's, he's having to relearn a little bit how to ride the bike in the corners. Um, it does look positive, but I, I still look at Aprilia's riding situation and think that that's going to be a massive, massive um, handicap this year. I, I just can't see... You know, Alesh is a really capable rider, really fast on his day, but given him, I mean, they don't have a test rider. They didn't have a test rider in Qatar. And yeah, things are going well for Alesh, but he, I mean, he can't single-handedly um, hold the factory up to the top six or, or top five. You know, it would take something Herculean from him. I just see the other factories too strong. Um, you know, if they had an Iannone alongside him and Bradley Smith as test rider, I would say, yeah, this could be great, but as it stands with no recognized test rider at the moment and with Lorenzo Salvadori, a complete rookie uh, on the other side of the box, I think that that's going to be a pretty main handicap this year and there's no getting away from that. Yeah, that was actually a question we got in from Alex McDee. So I'll just bring us to the end of the pod this week just by asking Alex's question and that was, what's our perception of Salvadori's performance and have Aprilia dropped a ball by not having a recognised test rider through the year? Is this something that we're going to see really bite them, David? Um, I mean, yeah, they they lost out twice. Bradley Smith really wants the race and so he's looking for a position to race. And uh, so he didn't accept being a uh, being a test rider, uh, a, a, being a position solely a test rider. Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be a big uh, a big problem for him. Salvadori, um Maybe he has potential, but he's going to take at least the uh, at least this season to actually get up to speed in MotoGP if he's capable of it. Uh, so let's wait and see. But yeah, I, I really don't think, uh, I, I think they're in trouble. They really need a good, fast test rider. Right now, Alessio Spargaro is all they've got. I mean, if you if you listen to Jorge Lorenzo, then maybe Alessio should be Aprilia's test rider. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that was his kind of damning verdict, really. But, um, you know, like the guys have said, I think that the, the, the priority for Aprilia first has to be a, an efficient engine that stays in one piece. Um, it's a curious looking motorcycle and I think it will look um, a damn sight ugly if it's parked next to the side of the track uh, like it was on numerous occasions in 2020. <laughs> so um, if those reliability problems are solved then that's that's one issue. But it was it was also interesting to hear on the eve of the test some of the um, senior management talking about having um, a satellite team uh, for 2022. Um, and you kind of think realistically who would want to run more Aprilia's? Um, if it's fantastic if the factory have that extra resource to to expand their presence in MotoGP. Um, but it's going to be a big season for them. And, and like Neil said, it's just kind of worrying that they don't have that premium level Grand Prix winning experience to, to, to push them on. Neil, you obviously already answered Alex's question already just beforehand, but uh, we're pretty much straight away into the Qatar 2 test. Neil, obviously you're on after the flag once again this week, so it's another busy week for you. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 6.30 Central European time. I think you can catch uh, some coverage. Uh, shameless plug here. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll be getting the usual uh, immediate reaction from uh, from Qatar as well as uh, a bit of Simon Creafar. I mean, you know, what's not to love really? Yeah, everyone loves a bit of Simon. But uh, David, obviously it's going to be busy for you over the course of the next three days. These are the three days where really we get to see some more answers because this is when riders are up to speed. This is when we really get to see the teams put in their work before the start of the season. Yeah, there's rubber on the track. Um, the conditions are going to be a lot more favourable. 
if a little bit warmer um uh, everyone everyone is up to speed people are going to start bringing some new parts and then on friday we should see uh race runs um race simulations um of people making time attacks so we should have a much better idea of where uh, people stand at least for the opening two races whether that carries on into the rest of the season is still a big question mark and add for you it's a bit more road testing as well as uh, keeping abreast of what's going on in qatar yeah i'm in the depths of catalonia at the moment steve in a, a very nice winery uh, slash hotel about to ride the new yamaha tracer uh touring bike uh, based on the mt09 so uh it's a tough life. Someone's got to do it. Um, you know, I, I do question the wisdom of having lots of copious wine, very fine wine on the night before a road test. But uh, it's, um, again, one of those things that we have to suffer, suffer, suffer for our art. And obviously, it's a busy week for the Paddock Pass podcast as well. I've already said that we spoke to Brad Binder during the week. That's actually going to go out to our Patreon supporters over the course of the next couple of days. And uh, then we'll also have an additional show for the Paddock Pass podcast later in the week, including that uh, Brad Binder interview. We've also got uh, Jack Miller lined up. We've got Moto2 and Moto3 riders lined up. So it's going to be busy for us on the Paddock Pass podcast going forward. You can also support us at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast for as little as $3 a month. It really does make a difference to the podcast. You can follow us at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter and uh, be sure to drop us a comment on that. You can also rate us on Apple iTunes or on where you get your podcast from. That makes a big difference for being able to help people find the podcast and also just to uh, make us a little bit more searchable. So a big thank you from myself, Steve English. Big thank you from David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler. We're all going to go and try and get a few winks of sleep before the start of Qatar 2. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. To test, obviously there's only a couple of days until then. Well, go to sleep, wake up, and then it's Qatar two two test. <laughs> when does it when does it start? Tomorrow, Tomorrow morning. <laughs> oh fuck off! Is it right? I tell you what, Brian. Just like we're going to cut from sixty three minutes to sixty four <laughs> minutes, and that's it. I'm sorry. I just because you need to get finished. That's the only reason we're fucking up now. <laughs> sorry, boys. Sorry. <laughs>